0: Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life.
1: is from John 9, 1-41. So you can stay standing if you want. <laughs> as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, "'Go wash in the pool of Siloam,' which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, "'Is this not the man who used to sit and beg?' Some said, "'It is he.' Others said, "'No, but he is like him.' He kept saying, "'I am the man.' So they said to him, "'Then how were your eyes opened?' He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight, and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that our, that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, They answered him, "'You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us?' And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, "'Do you believe in the Son of Man?' He answered, "'And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him?' And Jesus said to him, "'You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you.' He said, "'Lord, I believe,' and he worshipped him. Jesus said, "'For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind.' Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you are blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Dear Lord, thank you um, for this scripture reading in this time. And I pray that you um, you just show us what you would like us to see today and hear today. Um, and we receive it with humility. Um, and just get rid of our pride for what we think we know or what we see and I praise in Jesus name amen
0: amen so I know that that scripture was long but there's a whole thing in like Ezra and Nehemiah where they read the entire book of the law in a number of days and stood up and did it so I knew we could do it so I'm excited that we made it through 41 verses together um, and that we're going to make it through like at least a couple day long sermon right now so uh, whatever that might look like hopefully you're here so, especially a section of scripture this long, when I go into teaching, I kind of like to do something, uh, I don't know, different, is the right way to say it? I oftentimes won't dive directly into like the deepest depths of the context right away. Like, What I want to do is I want to get a feel for it. And so as I read this passage, I kept having my mind wander, sort of in prayer, like talking to the Lord, letting him kind of let my mind wander. And as it did, I kind of, uh, started thinking about our time and place and culture and maybe like what's happening in some people and how it's working. And um, I kept thinking about kind of the tides of cultural change and the confusion that can come for many followers of God, um, which way you should go, right? You have two, sometimes more sides to every story, and they're both about what you're emphasizing and You see followers of Jesus that don't fit into any camp, and then you see followers of Jesus, people who you thought were solid, and they fit so securely in one camp or another, and you go, gosh, where do I even go, right? It feels like the challenge of discerning the culture, discerning our time, and trying to figure out what to think, how to properly approach what truth actually is in a time when everybody screams so loudly that they believe the truth so strongly, and that they're truth is what the truth is and how does truth function in culture and it all just gets really messy. I kept thinking like, man, like what do you do? Like how do you practice discernment when it feels like what we believe is being herded in one direction or another and it's like relentlessly pestering us to pick a position on things and go into a pen with people that we don't necessarily hold the deepest beliefs with? You know, what does it mean What does it mean to let ourselves be in some ways not tethered, but set adrift from culture? What does it look like for us? And then I thought about the purpose of Scripture. The purpose of Scripture has with it this complete and total precise division of what truth is. The intention is that Scripture would mold and and meld people And that God gave us his word as a means to defining and understanding worldview, culture, thought processes, and all these things. So that we could be a discerning group of people. That by the spirit leading us into truth, the scripture comes alive for us and we see something different. We understand how to think. And so, as I thought about this passage, I I couldn't help but kind of let my mind wander to that thought. And so... In trusting the Lord, I want to read you a passage from 2 Timothy again because I know many of us have heard this before of what scripture does, of why we're looking at this today. What is the intention of a passage that's 41 verses long, seemingly a narrative about a man who was made to see all scripture is breathed out by God. This is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. Another way to say that is mature. Equipped for every good work. If scripture doesn't challenge you, then you may not be hearing it correctly. Because we live day to day as a part of a culture. We are raised in a culture In a time, we have thought processes and things that are uniquely our time and place. And those thought processes and things, they demand our attention of what truth is. They demand our discernment to pick through what side do we take? Who do we think is right? How do we view right? Ah, but scripture says this. It's useful for correction, for reproof, for training and teaching. Scripture grinds down the rough edges that we come to God with. The scriptures are intended to literally begin to define and refine our worldview and how we understand ourselves and our time, how we understand the people around us. And so in John 9, the reason why I bring this up to start is because in John 9, we see a transition where Jesus' main kind of people that he's interacting with, it goes from being more about crowds and the Pharisees to being more about the disciples. The disciples whom he will begin to shape, to spearhead a movement, to move forward with this kingdom of God, the thing that Jesus is giving to them. And so in John 9, we turn this brief corner. And the thing about this passage that I love and the thing that I think is so interesting is that what Jesus is doing for them is the same thing he does for all of his disciples then and now. And that is this. We will learn to see things the way Jesus sees things so that we can learn to do things the way Jesus does things. That's how this is going. This is what sanctification means in their time and ours that we see what Jesus sees and then go and do what Jesus does. But that refinement process, from blindness to sight, it begins with Jesus' sight. So in John 9, 1, it starts here, and all it says is, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, I realize that I'm going through one passage that's 41 verses, and I'm doing verse one, and jumping right into something, okay? I promise you the narrative portion gets better. But what I want you to see is this. What did Jesus see? Jesus saw this man. Jesus could have seen anyone. There were lots of people around, his own disciples. There were lots of other people around to see. But Jesus sees a man blind from birth. Did Jesus know he was blind from birth in that moment? I don't know. It doesn't say that. What it says is he saw him. This is where our story starts. Jesus sees people. That's how this functions. And his disciples will see people. They will see things. They will see what it is that they can do and who it is that they can reach to. Now, what he sees is hard to say in this man. But what I will say is this. Clearly, it, it brings his attention. Similar to the story of Jesus when he's being bumped into by the crowds, if you remember this one and he's being bumped into, and then all of a sudden he turns around and goes, who touched me? Right? It's like, everybody. Jesus sees this man, and that begins this process, this newness. Something happens. It sets this whole thing in motion, and he is going to teach his disciples to see like he sees. Verse 2. Told you it'd be days long. This is Ezra. This is Ezra, baby. We're going days talking about the law. Let's go. Um, John, t- John nine two to five, and his disciples asked him. This is where we get to see what the perspective of the disciples is. Okay, Jesus sees this man born blind. Now we get to see what the disciples see. Okay, this is awesome. It's good stuff. Thank you, Lord, for Scripture. And the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must, works, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So much of the next parts of this narrative are how Jesus corrects their view. See, everybody reads this story and they think that the only blind man that Jesus heals here is the man born blind. But there is a spiritual element here into which his disciples being born blind are going to be made to see. This includes us. Now, why are the disciples even asking this question? Where does this question even come from? Right? It's kind of narrow, is it not? Jesus... Was it him or his parents that sinned? Like, that's it. It's a very narrow question. Not Jesus, why was he born blind? To them, it might have been obvious. Their culture, their worldview, growing up in a time when the Pharisees and Sadducees and religious rulers are teaching them what things mean, right? They come with this idea already ready-made inside of them from their culture, from their understanding. And as they do, they approach Jesus with their current understanding and they make him go into this little box. Okay, Jesus, I've got this cultural understanding. You're going to fit in it. So is it here or here? And Jesus goes, no, I'm going to spend an entire narrative and explain to you why your worldview is going to shift. So as members of the Jewish community, these disciples, okay, what they would have been grown up being taught is that someone experiencing some form of infirmity, calamity, deformity, affliction, that it was either a result of them or an ancestor's direct sin, okay? Now, because of that, in that being a pervasive cultural thought, you get an interesting engagement here. So in other words, listen to this. This is where it starts to make more sense. There was a bias against anybody afflicted, anybody deformed, anybody who didn't really make the cut. There was a bias against these folks that they were under the judgment of God because they weren't perfect. What's interesting is this leads to a very, very scary place. Because if you think about it, they were raised to believe that they deserved the divine justice they were getting. What's interesting about some of that is some of us in here believe it. Some of you in here believe that holy is healthy. And you wouldn't admit it, not that way. Because most people who are here understand that that's not the way it works. But I'll show you a subtle way that the Lord is going to revamp our own worldview of what this all means. So what causes these things? why do we have infirmities, deformities, sickness, and pain? Sin, yes. But is it as simple as saying it's someone's direct sin? Is the reason why any bad thing happening is direct sin of the individual involved? Or maybe maybe their parents were bad enough that they're getting punished for it. Now, This comes in culturally for them, for these disciples and also for the Pharisees. This is going to come from Exodus 34, which is like a bedrock passage for them. It's a big deal in Jewish culture. Exodus 34 is like the passage, right? The Lord, the Lord. Verses six and seven starts off with, and it ends with, he keeps love to a thousand generations, right? Who will by no means let the guilty go unpunished But he will visit upon the generations the iniquity of the fathers. And their culture had this simple thought that was twisted that this meant that God, in his punishment of sin, continued to curse and curse and curse and curse, even if it's not their sin he was cursing for. Now, this is really kind of nuanced here, okay? And I'm going to try to walk through this a little bit, okay? So I'm going to give you some reasons why these things exist, and and this may seem like a giant aside, but I think this is really, really important for us to see what Jesus sees here, okay? So the answer is ultimately sin, but not necessarily direct sinful actions of the individual who is afflicted. We'll start there. The person themselves, are they going through the sickness because of their sin? Let's start there. Is he blind because he sinned? Since the corruption of sin was thrust upon the world by our oldest ancestors, being born sinners and deserving of divine justice, yet in his mercy, God let people live physically for a time, despite dying spiritually. Okay? So the present state of our world is that humanity corrupts everything around us, and in turn, everything around us corrupts us back. The world was afflicted With the consequences of sin, the same way we were afflicted with the consequences of sin, just a little bit different application. So, what does that mean? It means bad things happen that don't seem just, they don't seem right. It does not seem right to us that a baby would be born with affliction. It feels wrong, something's out of sorts. Trees fall on structures. Animals attack people. Extreme heat can make us feel like we want to die. And sometimes it can kill us. Now, I've heard this before, and someone might argue, okay, maybe the tree falling on that guy was a result of the fact that he, he lusted three nights ago. Okay? Okay? Now, that might be a possibility for somebody who is not under the covering of Christ. It may be a form of divine justice to get your attention. That's possible. But why is that the only thing? Sometimes bad things happen, man. And I've been accused at times of not being hopeful enough in the middle of sermons and only at the end so I will give you a little bit of hope now, okay? Guys, God doesn't punish the sin of those who are under Christ. Romans 8.1 is clear. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The leg that broke when the tree fell on you is not because God is punishing you. If you believe that, your view of what Christ did for you needs to grow. Because if you believe that there was anything left undone by Jesus, nothing could be farther from the truth. There is no need for the wrath of God to come and play like that for you if you are a follower of Jesus. That's not how sin works anymore. Divine justice is satisfied. So back to the bad stuff. Sometimes something is a result of the natural consequences of sin, right? Right? liver disease for an alcoholic? An an STD for somebody who's sexually immoral? Breaking your hand because you hit a stud when you punched a wall in anger or aggression? I don't want to see any smiles. Sorry, I smiled. (laughs) It isn't funny, but it is real. Like, that's a consequence of your sin immediately felt, right? Now, it isn't divine justice in the same degree. It is a consequence of sin, right? You were the dumb-dumb that kicked the whatever, the table, and that's why your toe hurts, right? That's a simple consequence of sin, okay? Yes, it is sin. Don't kick things, at least not in anger. If you play soccer, I apologize. Sometimes things happen because of someone else's sin. Now, this is very real, and I want to be really sensitive to this because I know that there's a lot of people in here who have experienced a lot of this stuff. Abuse, murder, theft, a baby born addicted to drugs. These are consequences of someone else's sin, right? That does happen. That is real here. There are consequences for that sin. But guys, divine justice is an immediate thought process. I want to be clear that as we talk more about this, this might be true that divine justice is a part or or p- plays a part in this for some people who are outside Of the kingdom of God. And I don't say that to be like, oh, here comes the condemnation talk from the guy at church. Like, that's not how I'm thinking. What I'm trying to communicate to you is this. Hopefully what you understand is that there is a covering. There is this whole realm of people who do not walk around with the thought in their brain that divine justice is a thing that's going to be attached to them. Because as followers of Jesus, as people who have submitted our lives to Jesus, as people who have believed in Jesus, we actually are underneath completely this covering of Jesus. This idea that the blood of Christ covers us. Yes. But Jesus and sin have this relationship. Life, death. Jesus kills it when it comes to sin. Jesus only ever obliterates it in every form. And what's interesting is that he takes this moment to show that even though this is not necessarily a consequence of his parents' sin or his sin, that this blind man was going to see what Jesus does against the literal like consequences of sin. He removes them. The relationship that we see with our sin is often one of feeling tethered, of feeling bound, of feeling like we're literally underneath it all the time. The truth is that's not true. You have no tethering to sin if you are a follower of Jesus. You are free. Now you're going to have a fleshly response, but your spirit is completely unbound. You no longer have that binding. And what's interesting is as we get into this idea of generational sin, of what it means to have legacy sin, right? Now, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about this, like, if you feel bound to the idea that you will be a distant father because you had a distant father, if you feel bound to the idea that you will abuse because you were abused, if you feel bound to the idea that nobody will ever love you because you felt misunderstood and unloved in your home, if you feel bound to the idea that for sure you're gonna be addicted because they were addicted, No, no, there is no generational curse under Christ. It is gone, none, gone. You are not bound by those things. You may feel like they're still there. You may feel like they're ever present in a sense. Oh, but you're free. You're free. And when you experience trial... When you experience difficulty, (laughs) it's a complete inverse from what the Pharisees were teaching in their cultural day. Actually, according to passages like Hebrews 12, 5, trial tells us that God is treating us as his child. And many of us are right now going, how is that possible? If God loved me, wouldn't this thing be okay? Okay. If God loved me, like, wouldn't this sickness go away? If God loved me, wouldn't he heal my baby? Hebrews twelve five says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones that he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline, That you endure. God is treating you as his child. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? And if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had an earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. There is a hardship that God has allowed So whatever the weaknesses inside of you are will not continue. But don't you for a minute think that it's a punishment for anything. In the worldview of the kingdom, it is a kindness for our training. Sometimes it's not a direct consequence of sin. Sometimes it's the way God will help us to be free from a sin. Are you under the assumption that bad things happen to you as a direct result of your own sin? I'm not saying that there aren't consequences. Some of them are natural. Some of them are discipline. But I am telling you that if you believe, follower of Jesus, that he will ever punish you again, then you are limiting what Jesus did for you. The truth is, is that anything that happens here is that God's power might be displayed. Anything. If God chooses to heal the sickness, it's for his power to be displayed. If God chooses to leave the sickness, it's that his power might be displayed. If God chooses to move in the hearts of the neighbor or the spouse or the kid, it's for his glory. It's for his works to be displayed. If God chooses... To allow that person to remain under divine justice, it is for his glory. The implication here is that if you or anyone, including the disciples, believed that the direct sin of the man or the direct sin of his parents was why he was blind, then the implication culturally is this. The holy are healthy. The sick are the sinners. Oh, but that's not what Jesus sees. That's the point here. This literally leaves an open door to you believing that the person who is under any affliction deserves it and I probably shouldn't get involved with the divine justice. You guys, that's not the kingdom. That's not how we think. That's not how Jesus thinks. There are times when that thought process is probably there. But most of the time what we see is a fellow sinner. Man, somebody just like us. Somebody who's just as sick as us. Now, they may be physically and I may be spiritually, but it's just as sick. And in that sickness, I have compassion and grace and humility to enter into it with them, right? They categorized the the afflicted as deserving it. That is such a dangerous thing for the disciples to believe. Why? Because Jesus is going to send them out to heal the sick. He's going to send them out to do these amazing things. And if they believed that they were doing the wrong thing, That'd be a contradictory thought process. So Jesus is training these guys. And he's saying, hey, listen, I'm going to shift your whole worldview from this religious ruler mentality, these elites that believe that you have to be elite if you're religious. That's who you are. You're elite. No. No, we're sick, blind sinners who God happened to open the eyes of spiritually. And here we are. What does it look like to do the works of God? that's the beauty of this passage is it's almost an allegory of us i was blind and now i see see guys the holy aren't necessarily healthy why because what god is doing in us spiritually is something bigger than just this physical reality we still wear flesh that's corrupted we still have a fleshly existence that is being corrupted and is corrupted and being changed so how's this guy gonna get through 36 more verses in like four minutes? Guys, it's, it's about worldview. All of scripture is. If it doesn't challenge you anymore, ask Jesus for eyes to see it. John 9, 6 to 7. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he washed and came back seeing. I think this is the first example of the blind man's obedience going where Jesus told him to go. I also think it puts distance between Jesus and the crowd for what's about to happen. John 9, 8 to 12. This is starting to take root. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he's like him. He kept saying, I I am the man. So they said to him, then how are your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? I don't know. I really enjoy how simple and quick this man says things. I really wish I could do the same. All right. So people are taking notice, right? They're taking notice, which causes the religious leaders to take, take notice. You have John 9, 13 to 17. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened the eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, well, he put mud in my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how could a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they again said to the blind man, what do you say about him? Since he has opened your eyes, he is a prophet. He was a man to the crowd. He was a prophet here. No explanation of why, just he opened my eyes, right? Now, the division between the Pharisees is interesting. But what's even more interesting is that this small little obscure Sabbath rule is basically what they're trying to get Jesus on here. Okay, you weren't allowed to knead dough on the Sabbath to make bread. Okay? And because Jesus reaches down and rubs the man's eyes with mud as he's making him see for the first time, they say he's not from God. That's a simple little rule that they're trying to get him on. Now, what's interesting is Jesus could have healed him with a word or even a touch, right? He does that with another person in Galilee. He heals the blindness with a touch. But what's interesting is, is Jesus just being an antagonist for fun? He didn't have to rub the man's eyes. He knew that that would be a rule. So what was he doing here? And I think it's, again, about the disciples. Jesus is helping to reshape their way of thinking. And to do that, he's taking their old worldview, and he's poking holes in it so that he can fill in what the truth is. And so you see this throughout, right? He's not picking a fight with the Pharisees, just to pick a fight. He's actually just going to overthrow their whole system. So he, he's not even like just like it's not a fight. The fight is so that the disciples can see what he sees and think like he thinks. The whole point of that interaction is that the disciples might be changed to see people differently than the Pharisees see people. John nine eighteen to twenty four. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight, 18 and 23, until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, is this your son, whom you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Now, it's funny that the Jews did not believe the man who was born blind until they met his parents, but that's, I don't think that's necessarily even the point of this interaction. What's really interesting here is, where were the parents? They had a blind son who was begging. Where are they? They don't even know who opened his eyes. According to them. Could be being coy. But where are the parents in this man's story? Why did Jesus Jesus find him randomly and heal him? Shouldn't his parents at least had some compassion on him? Wouldn't that be right? Ah, but if you grew up in a culture that believed what? That infirmity, deformity, sickness, pain, was a result of divine justice, how likely would you be to take care of that baby, to take care of that young man? The implications culturally of this are huge because they led a, par- a group of parents, two parents, to no longer take care of their child. Now, maybe they feared that if everybody knew they had a blind son, maybe, and I'm conjecturing a little bit, but you can see the implication. Maybe if they feared that, That their friends at the synagogue, they would look at him like, man, maybe you sinned, and that's why he's blind. So we can't really be around you. It's so pervasive. It just bleeds into every aspect of the story. As we go forward, and and as I wrap up right now, and and we'll pick up at at verse 24 next week, but there's an element at which this. Jesus is taking the disciples, and he's beginning to change what they seek. He's beginning to make them from people who can only see the way their culture tells them to see. And he's starting to refine, define, move, grow, whatever he's doing with his disciples to get them in preparation for doing the works of God. He's doing the same with us. Because I'm willing to bet that there are some of you who still think you're bound to sin. Whether it be your parents' sin, whether it be a sin you committed years ago, but you still think that there's so no punishment that's coming your way. You still think you have to make up for that. What's wild is how did we get that culturally? It feels like it's like ingrained in us that if somebody sinned, there has to be a punishment on the person themselves. And I get that. Guys, it's people under Jesus like, The direct consequences of sin, they're gone. They're no longer upon us. We are not bound to sin anymore. And somehow blindness keeps us from seeing what Jesus really did. Why? Because it's a progression. It's sanctification. He's moving in us. You are not bound to do the thing you do, the negative, the the bad, whatever thing you do, you aren't bound. Because your parents were one way, you're not bound to be that way. Now, might you? Yeah, you might. Why? Because you learned how to sin in the same way that you can learn faithfulness from your parents. You learn how to do these things, but you are not bound by them. There is no curse on your life anymore in Christ the curse is canceled so 2 Corinthians 4:16 to 18 is what i want to end with so we do not lose heart though our outer self is wasting away our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Lord, may we see like you see. And I pray, God, that um, if there's anyone in here who believes that they are still in some form bound to their sin if they've confessed, if they've turned to you, Lord, I pray right now, God, please break that. It is so unnecessary. It is so contrary to how you are with sin so Lord may you please continue to break those bounds for your glory and your name we pray these things in Jesus name thank you for listening to our podcast to find out more about our church please visit
1: revolution22.org We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers, and may you continue to love God and love others.